Hey, uh, next Sunday afternoon, 4 o'clock, I would love to have you in this room with me for a three-hour seminar called Prayer Ministry Training. This is an opportunity for you to come and uh, learn some things about the way we pray for people here to invite the kingdom of God to come, to invite God to come and break out in miraculous ways, signs and wonders, these kinds of things. We would love for you to come. And that's next Sunday afternoon at 4 o'clock. That gives me time to do two services, go home and get something to eat, take a nap, and come back. So I will be fresh. (laughs) All right. Uh, I would love to have you come. And what that does is it not only helps you in your personal prayer life, but it also gives you the training that we ask you to take in order to be one of these people who come up and pray for others at the end of each service. Now, by taking it doesn't mean you have to come up, but it means you're then qualified to do so, qualified to begin an apprenticeship, if you will, coming up and watching how it's done and getting your own confidence over time so that you can be one of those people. I mean, wouldn't you like to be one of those people that prays for somebody and sees God come and do something amazing in front of you? How many of you have seen God do something amazing in prayer? And you see some hands up around here, and we want to see more of it, and we want to see it more consistently. And so, uh, you know, come on out. If you've never been through that prayer ministry training seminar with me, come. If you have, love to have you come again, get jump-started, refreshed, empowered, um, so that we can just be ready when God decides to come in the power of his kingdom, okay? So that's next Sunday afternoon at Cuatros. I'm ambidextrous. Thank you. Thank you. Be sure to tip your waitresses. In my mind, in my walk with Jesus Christ, there is a short list of very important subjects that you could never study too much, that you could never explore too much. One of them is the love of God, how much God loves us. We, we could never read enough Bible, do enough thoughtful, meditative kind of prayer that would be too much about the love of God. Also, from my viewpoint, the blood of Jesus Christ is another one of those biblical subjects and such an essential part of our walk with God. Because the blood of Jesus Christ, as we just sang, the Bible says in Hebrews, speaks a better word than the, than the blood of Abel. And, you know, you may remember in the Old Testament that the blood of Abel cried out to God from the ground when he was killed by his brother. So the blood cried out to God. The blood of Christ speaks a better word, a better word, because it cries out not just for justice, but it cries out for mercy for you and for me. And so when we come to God through his son Jesus Christ, And his shed blood on the cross, his blood cries out for us. 
and it cries out for justice, that the justice of God will be satisfied because all have sinned, the Bible said, and fallen short of the glory of God. God is a holy God. His justice must be satisfied. So his blood cries out in justice, but it also cries out in mercy. And it marks you, Eddie. The Bible says, cleanse me with hyssop and I'll be white as snow. That was the Old Testament practice of putting a hyssop branch in the blood of a lamb that had been slain and sprinkling it on you so you were actually spattered with blood. This is the work of Christ. is to mark us in the kingdom reality. Mark us as those belonging to God through His Son, Jesus Christ, and the blood of Christ that's spattered on us and cries out when God sees us with the blood spattered on us, His justice is satisfied. His mercy is extended. I don't know about you. I would have thought that after all these years of following Jesus, I would have needed less mercy by now. Sadly, it's not true. I need as much of the mercy of God in my life. My list of sins might be different than what they were when I was a puppy as a Christian, you know, when I was a young believer. But they are, they are no less offensive to me. And so we continue to need the blood of Christ. In just a few moments, we're going to celebrate communion. It's the first Sunday of the month, and you can see that four tables are set up, two in the front and two in the back. That's what this is. It's about the broken body of Christ. It's about his shed blood. And when you take his blood in, in faith, when you take his blood in in faith and renew that relationship that you have with God through His Son, Jesus Christ, on the cross, then it's as though you're being respattered, remarked, remarked. And that blood will speak justice. That blood will speak mercy for you. So when you come to this table in just a few minutes, would you come with that heart, confessing your sin, confessing our sin, our need of Christ as much today as ever so that that can be renewed in us, all right? In just a few moments, uh, the offering baskets will pass you by and once they get by you, would you get up from where you are and go to one of the tables, whichever's closest, front or back, and take the elements and return to your seats and hold on to them and then I'll come back and we'll take them together. Maybe you're a guest here today and you're saying, am I welcome at, the ta- at your table? First of all, yes, but guess what? It's not our table. It's the table of the Lord. If you're seeking Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord of your life, you are welcome at the Lord's table, of course. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this great first Sunday of the new year. Maybe that means more to us than you, but we know that what matters to us matters to you. And so on this day, Lord, we just want to We just want to get it more right than we've ever had it before. And Lord, as we we pull up to this table and as we take these elements, these powerful symbols of what you did for us on the cross, I just pray that every one of us will be refreshed in that covenant relationship that we have with you through your son, Jesus. I pray that as we come to these elements in faith, that you would do what you do 
to somehow transform them into the body and blood of Christ so that as we take them, Father God, you would mark us, mark us once again as your sons and daughters through what your son did for us on the cross. I pray for everybody. Father, I pray for the ones who are walking tall and strong. Can't believe that they're living such a strong, clean life before you. I pray, Father, also for the rest of us who continue to struggle, who continue to surprise ourselves with unbroken, with broken promises, things we said we'd never do, and we've done them again, Lord, and we need your forgiveness now again. But I just pray for everybody in this room that this time of communion would not be an act of religion, but a celebration of relationship, Father God. We invite you to come and bless this offering. Thank you, Father, for the extreme generosity of these people and for all that you enable us to do here and around the world because of it. We invite your presence now in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I, Karen and I have been married for more than four decades, and I still don't understand her. Uh, and it seems to be getting worse in some aspects. The part that I find difficult to understand is what she means when she says things. I work hard to hear the words. I'm, I try to be a good listener. I'm not by nature. And so I have to work at it. And it just seems like the next day we're having a conversation and she says, don't you remember that we were going to, and I'm like, not at all. I, I have no recollection of that at all. And I, I feel bad for her. But I have to admit that sometimes I'm a little suspicious that she may use that to her, oh, we talked about, oh, okay. When I hear something clearly from her, I'm always happy, because there, I got that. That I got, I can run with it. I've been listening to Jesus for about the same amount of time, and sometimes he's loud and clear, and sometimes he comes back and says, remember when we talked about that? And I'm like, yeah. I got a clear word from the Lord during that uh, two weeks of prayer that Karen and I spent in September, and we just retreated. And uh, our, our, our whole point of that time was to get away so that we could, uh, of course, rest some, but uh, spend some time in prayer. And while it was not definitely an amazing two weeks where the heavens opened up, and uh, yeah, yeah, let's do that again soon, it was... Um, there were, it was marked with times of, you know, where the Lord spoke, and the Lord spoke to my heart in particular. And one of the things that I heard the Lord say was something like this, as I was praying about our future as a church, and I, I heard him say that 2015 will be all about, I am the God of this city. I am the God of this city. And I, of course, asked for revelation and explanation, insight and understanding into what a statement like that could mean. 
And I got stuck for a little while on the fact that it started with the words, I am. I am. Anytime I'm reading in the Bible and I hear Jesus say, I am the bread of life, I am the living water, when he says, I am, you know that he's referencing himself as God because what did he say to Moses when Moses said, yeah, okay, I'll go to Egypt, but who shall I say sent me? And he said, tell him, I am sent you. I am Yahweh is the name of God. I am. I am that I am. So when he said, I am the God of this city, this picture began to form in my mind of God being God over the municipality of our city. Um, and that part was good. And, and as I continue to reflect on that and say, well, Lord, Lord, what does that mean for us? So you are the God of this city. You are the God of the city. What does that really mean? And uh, I felt this uh, pulling from the Lord to stop thinking about the city in the way that I think about the city. Because I could think of Grove City that has boundaries, or I could think of you know, Columbus as a city with its various city suburbs attached to it and various regions within the city. And um, the Lord challenged me not to think of the city that way because that's not how he was thinking of it in terms of this call on us as a church. But to think of it not as, oh, are we talking about Grove City or are we talking about Columbus? But we're talking about the population of people who call this place their home. And in some ways, it's a kind of a nonspecific, amorphous blob of a million or so people. And as I press through that, not thinking about, but Lord, some of our people live in Grove City, and some of them live in Hilliard, and some of them live in Mount Sterling, and some of them live on the hilltop. And, and when I stopped thinking of it that way, and the Lord just showed me that those lines mean nothing to him. Those lines mean nothing to him, but that he loves this city. He loves the people of this city. God has a heart for the people of this city. And that he is the God of this city. In spite of what you may see going on in this city, God is still the God of this city. And nothing happens in this city that doesn't happen by the permission of God. He's the God of this city. And so as I continued to pray through that, I got this very clear sense that this year is going to be about our taking God to this city. Being a part of all that God's doing with us and the hundreds of other fellowships of believers, authentic believers who are also following God to take God to the city. There's been a lot of emphasis in our history on what God is doing inside the walls here, on the kingdom breaking out in here, on walking the wall, and this being a sacred space, a place where we come and in faith we worship God and we invite him to come and break out in the power of his kingdom and the power of his Holy Spirit. To cause is the word of God to come alive among us. And that's all true. And that's all great. And, and that will continue. But we have to realize something. That God poured himself out on those first century believers in that upper room so that they could do what? So they could go. 
so they could go, go into the city. If you want some reference for that, you're going to want to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 1. We'll focus on verse 8. If you have a Bible, uh, Acts is in the New Testament. It's right past uh, the four beginning books of the New Testament. The Bible is broken up into Old Testament and New Testament. And the New Testament starts with four books called the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. The word gospel means good news, and so there are four accounts of the good news of the coming of Jesus Christ into the world, who came, and he did the things that he did, including dying for our sins, rising from the dead. The book of Acts is the fifth book of the New Testament, and it's more appropriately called the Acts of the Apostles, is its official name. Because what it is, is it picks up from where Jesus uh, ascent, you know, died on the cross and then he ascends to the Father in the, first, in the very first part of the book of Acts. And the rest of the book of Acts is about how God pours himself out through those first century believers. And it's a powerful and important book for us as believers to, to, to know and understand. It's an historical account of how God poured himself out in that first century. Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, in my former book, Theophilus, wow, if you wanted to study the Bible, you need to stop right there, don't you? In my former book, what does that mean? Does that mean that he wrote an earlier book? Well, it must be. In my former book, well, we're going to discover that this book was written by one called Luke, who was a physician, a follower of Christ. God used him to write a whole gospel called the Gospel of? Gospel according to Luke. It's actually the Gospel of Jesus Christ according to Luke. Luke had a real eye for detail. Real eye for just getting the details right and letting people draw their their theological conclusions, if you will, from that. In my former book, Theophilus, so what he's saying is, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to continue the story. So if you're really interested in getting the context of Acts, if you're really dedicated to that, you wouldn't move on until you went back and read the whole Gospel of Luke, right? In order to know the point from which he is proceeding. Does that make sense, yes or no? Yes. yes. In my former book, Theophilus, Theophilus, who's Theophilus? Can't find him anywhere else in the Bible. Who is this Theophilus? Could have been an actual person. Most likely it was, uh, what do they call that, like a, a pseudonym or something like that? What is that word that they use for another word? I don't know either. I don't recall right now. Theophilus, if you break it down, Theo, which is God, that's where we get theology from, and that the phyllis or the phyllis is the word for love. And so he was probably using it as a, a, a euphemistic name, not a pseudonym, a euphemistic name for God lovers. In my former book, God lovers, those of you who are interested in loving God, it could have been an actual person, but we don't know. More likely, it was part of the style of writing. Do you love God? I'm asking you a question, people. Thank you, Peter. Now, listen, this is not church. It's the vineyard. If, we're gonna, if you're going to be quiet when I ask a question, uh, we'll, I'll, we'll just move on and become a church. All right? Do you love God? Yes. 
do you want? And some of you are going, I, I want to, and that's okay. Some of you are saying, I'm not even really sure what that means, but I think it's where I want to go. Then this book was written for you. In my former book, God Lovers, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. This is cool. This is historical data for us. This is, this is reliable historical data that, some, that, that somebody are saying, somebody's saying, we saw him. He showed himself not just once so that it was maybe just some, you know, sort of ecstatic apparition or something, something that happened. But after his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. <laughs> this is key for us. This is another one of those subjects on your short list of you can't study too much. The kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? Freely we use that phrase here in the vineyard all the time. Because what is it that we want? Do we want to have church or do we want to experience the kingdom? We want the kingdom. And Jesus, as the risen Christ, spoke about the kingdom of God and what that means. We want to experience the present reality of God's kingdom. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. I love that. While he was eating with them, the risen Christ. He said, yeah, let's go meet up at McDonald's. I love that about Jesus, right? You know, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Don't leave Jerusalem. They were in Jerusalem at the time. They were fearing for their lives. They were being persecuted by the Romans. Don't leave Jerusalem. They all wanted to leave Jerusalem. They all wanted to get as far from Jerusalem as they could. The crucifixion had happened right outside Jerusalem. The heat was on in Jerusalem. They wanted to get away. But he said, don't go. Don't go. Sometimes when God speaks to you, he gives you an uncomfortable word. Yeah? And you're pretty sure it's not him, because God would never do that, right? He told these guys who were living in fear that they were going to be killed, whose logical, natural reaction would be head for the hills. He said, don't leave Jerusalem. I want you to stay right here. But wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Last week I was beating up on Pentecostals for using the phrase, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Theologically, there's an incredible difference between what Pentecostal theology teaches and what happened historically here. Because the Holy Spirit had not yet been poured out on the church. This is an historical moment. This is something like Jesus dying on the cross, that the Holy Spirit baptized the church. Up to this point, there was no opportunity for that. In the Gospel of John, Jesus said, i got to go. I'm going to die for your sins. I've got to go. But it's good that I go away, he said, because if I go away, the Father will send another, the Holy Spirit, and he, the Holy Spirit, who will come. And so this is what he was prophesying. He's saying, I want you guys to wait right here until the Holy Spirit is poured out on you. 
This is such a key because they wouldn't have known what to do next if not for the Holy Spirit coming. Um, so when they met together, they asked him, you know, let's just change the subject. Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Remember, it's hard to know what Jesus is about in the beginning, isn't it? Have you noticed as you walk with the Lord Jesus and you learn more about his character and his mission as you move along, and you look over your shoulder, and I'm a little embarrassed about some of the things that I used to think about Jesus in my early days. I don't think he was embarrassed because I was, I was an infant, right? And so they're, they're still not sure what the mission of Christ is. Okay, wow, this is amazing. You allowed yourself to be crucified by the Romans that I thought we were going to overthrow. And, but you're back, so are you now going to restore the kingdom? Do you see how their question makes sense? So now are you going to do the thing we thought you came to do? And he said, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. Um, and so he said, but you will receive power. Here we go. Here's your verse for today. But you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. He didn't answer their question. Are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And his answer is yes and no. Not in the way that you think. But God's going to pour out his Holy Spirit and the kingdom of God is going to emanate from those who will receive the Holy Spirit and live in the context of living vital relationship with the Holy Spirit. He said, are you going to give the Holy Spirit back to Israel? Israel had become empty religion, hadn't it? Jesus said to the Israelites... He said, you guys honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. He said, your religion is but rules made up by men. And so they're saying, are you going to give the Holy Spirit back to Israel? And he's going, God's going to give the Holy Spirit, but it won't necessarily be to Israel. It'll be to everybody who comes in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, who is open, surrendered, and open to the move of the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? Okay. So then we get to this verse, uh, this verse 8, which is the God of this city part. But you'll receive power. The Holy Spirit comes on you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now I want you to notice some things there. First of all, notice that it was always the agenda of Jesus Christ to take over the world. It was always the agenda of Jesus Christ to take over the world. It's still the agenda of Jesus Christ to take over the world. The Bible says that the Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Jesus said to these guys, I want you to go into all the earth and make disciples of all nations. It is still the agenda of Jesus Christ to take over the world. Has Jesus Christ taken over your home? Has he taken over your neighborhood? Has he taken over your city, your township? Has he taken over the world? Is the mission accomplished is what I'm asking. And the answer is no. And God is stirring you. And God is stirring some of you for other parts of the world because it is still the mission of Jesus Christ to take over the world. I also want you to notice 
that it's the promise of Jesus Christ that we will experience the power of the Holy Spirit. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Some of you wonder, have I been filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, let me ask you this. Does the power of God work through you? Is the power of God working through you? Are you seeing the power of God working through you? Because when the Holy Spirit comes on you, the Bible says the power of God will work through us. Now specifically, he says here, so that we'll be as witnesses. So that the power of God works through us. So that as we present the gospel message, the power of God works in people's hearts and they turn. But is the power of God working through you and your specific gifting as a follower of Jesus Christ? Or do you feel like you're doing it on your own? Terrible thing happening in the American church today. And that is that we have a lot of good ideas and we make a lot of good plans and then we call good people to do their best. And give it all you got. And those of you who are real Christians, you'd be working at it harder. Come on, right? You see how insidious, empty religion can come into that spot? That's not what it says here. It says, here's what God wants to do. He wants to pour His Holy Spirit out on the church and have the power of God come and be displayed among us. That's the promise of God. And then the third thing I want you to notice about this Acts chapter 1 verse 8 is that the strategy of Jesus Christ is to expand his kingdom in ever-increasing concentric circles. He said what? You'll be my witnesses. By the way, the Greek for the word witnesses there is not one that you want to hear. The Greek word for witnesses is actually the word for martyr, which means to be killed for your faith. And he said, and you will be my martyrs. (laughs) You'll be my martyrs. It can be translated witnesses, but that's how you get yourself killed, is by witnessing to Jesus Christ, right? To witnessing to the things that you've seen and heard. We have, uh, 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 I mean, I just wanted to point out that the strategy of Jesus Christ is to expand his kingdom in ever-increasing concentric circles. He said, you're going to start in Jerusalem, And then go where? To Judea. And then go where? To Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And if you study your Bible geography, you just see that these are like bigger, bigger, bigger areas. But where does it begin? Starts at home. It starts at home. It starts at home. Listen. Listen carefully. If you feel like you're being called to do something in some other part of the earth, then you'll be doing it here. You'll be doing it here. That's the command of God. Do not think that when I get to wherever, when I get to India, when I get to South America, when I get to the North Pole and the penguins I'm called to reach or whatever, that then that's when I'll kick it in. That's when I'll really be able to be the outspoken Christian that I see. If you're not doing it here, you won't do it there. You won't. It'll be a catastrophe. You've got to understand what's being said here. Jesus said, you start in Jerusalem. He's the God of this city. He's the God of this city. And we have a ministry to bring to this city. We have a message to proclaim to this city. You know, there are thousands and thousands of Christians in this city. 
this amorphous blob of people. There are thousands and thousands. And sometimes you feel like you're the only one, right? And isn't that just ridiculous? When you know that there are other believers, and they're sitting in churches listening to their own version of their own tall, bald guy somewhere and trying to get it going on with Jesus. Right now, sitting there thinking they're the only believers. What a lie from the enemy. Let's break that in the name of Jesus right now. God gave me a picture of this city many years ago. And because we love small groups here in this church, we love the life group, we love people to gather together in small groups and have authentic, deep fellowship with one another here. God gave me a picture, and that was with, there are a thousand churches in Franklin County. And he showed me that they're really not separate churches, and I've shared this in pastor's meetings, uh, but that each one of these churches is just a small group of God somewhere in the city. I want you to understand that, that we are part of a great thing, and we have a message to bring, and you're not the only one bringing it. Here's a lie of the devil. Somebody, God puts somebody on your heart at work or somewhere with whom to share the gospel. There's evidence for you to believe that they don't know the Lord, and you're feeling stirred like, I need to tell them about the Lord. Here's a lie that comes quickly from the devil. You're the only one. Nobody else has ever shared the gospel with them. You'll be, man, you'll be climbing a steep hill sharing it with that guy. Let me tell you what, that guy has heard it from five other people because God is after them. You have to understand that we have a message. We have a message to share. And we got to get sharing it. We got to get sharing it. I have a question for you. How many of you in the past three days have participated in at least one conversation about the Buckeyes winning the semifinal national championship against Alabama. How many of you, I'd like, I wouldn't mind seeing a show of hands. You, you say, yeah, I guess I talked about that in the last three days. It's pretty that, that, that you, you've talked to somebody about it, haven't you? I mean, Maybe they brought it up, maybe you brought it up, but something was said. Some of you have probably initiated conversations about it, right? You're going to work and you can't wait to talk to that Michigan fan at work, or better still, that Oregon Duck fan at work, right? And you can't wait. And you love this story, and you love it for three reasons. Number one... Because it was an amazing victory, was it not? It was, it was just an amazing victory. I mean, to be down 21-6 at the beginning of the second quarter and go, oh boy, this isn't going well. Weren't you just feeling like this thing's going to unravel in a bad way? Anybody, can we talk? Huh? And then at halftime when it was 21-20 and you're like, hey, wait, wait, wait. I mean, I wish that we were 21 and they were the 20, but hey, hey, wait. And then that second half, hello. Why did it have to be so late? I, we had an amazing lock-in with the youth here Friday night. It was fantastic. And, man, you guys, 50-plus kids here and you adults who stuck it out all night long. I went home at 2. I was done, but... Karen stayed the whole night, and what an amazing time. But 
Man, why do these football games have to be so late, right? Man, i got to go to bed at 8.30. You haven't kicked off yet. But it was an amazing, Bart, it was an amazing victory, wasn't it? So that's something to talk about right there. That just kind of has a life of its own. How about this? Um, because it was a victory that defied some logic. They were nine-point underdogs, correct? I mean, Alabama, Crimson Tide, hello! SEC, lot to be afraid of, right? Logically. It's okay to say it. I know some of you won't. But on paper, logically, it was like, boy, it's going to be something if the Bucks pull this off somehow, some way, isn't it? Yeah, logically. So it, it was a victory that defied logic. Here's another reason you told the, you've told the story, because at some point you experienced it. At some point. At some point in that trick play, when that was coming in, at some point when that foot was a half an inch from the line, at some point, did you not experience something? Did you not go, yes, yes, yes? Come on, did you? Raise your hand if you did something like that, okay. So, I mean, you weren't there, you weren't playing, but you experienced it, right? And these three things really make a story worth telling. And they motivate you to tell a story. So in the last three days, the majority of you have entered into a conversation and many of you have initiated a conversation about the amazing victory of a college football team, right? You know what my next question is, don't you? How many of you in the past three days, don't raise your hand because you wouldn't want to show off. How many of you in the past three days have had a conversation with someone about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ? And I don't say that to make you feel guilty, but I want to make a very important point. I want to ask you a question. Is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ an amazing victory? I know. It's, it's an amazing victory. Your sins are forgiven. Your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Because of what Jesus Christ did for you on the cross. That's an amazing victory. Let me ask you another question. Does the story of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ in many ways defy logic? That God would send His Son as an infant to a virgin to live a secret, hidden life until at some point in His life He comes out and says amazing things and performs miracles and and shows an incredible perspective until the day of the Father's appointment, He voluntarily allowed Himself to be slaughtered. Though He had no sin, He became sin for us. And He was dead. But on the third day, He rose from the dead and gave many convincing proofs that He was alive. 
Does that defy logic? Is that a victory that defies logic? Then there can only be one reason. We haven't told that story in the last three days. Because at some point, you got to experience it. Here's the thing that is missing from the American church today is the experience of God. Is the actual encounter with the living God. We have it, and then it escapes us. It seems to come, and then it seems to go. Am I right? What kept these disciples telling everybody about Jesus Christ? was this consistent encounter with the move of God through the power of His Holy Spirit. If you're reluctant to share your faith, to share the message of the gospel, I don't believe for a second it's because you don't believe it. I I believe that you believe it with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But I believe it's because you're not sufficiently experiencing it power of God. This is where it begins. It's through an experience. And there are many ways to experience God. And we're going to be moving through this in this series of God of this city because it's got to start with you. It's got to, he said, wait. He said, before you go out running off telling the world about Jesus, wait for the gift my Father promised because you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And then you'll be my witnesses. It starts with that. Some of you have experienced the move of God, but it's in your memory. Some of you never have, and you're still longing for it. Keep longing for it. Keep presenting yourself. Because the promise of the Bible is it's going to begin there. I'm not standing here this morning to tell you you're a bad person or try to make you feel guilty because you haven't led somebody to Christ. I'm saying I think I know what the problem is. And it's not about what you believe, but what you experience. And so this morning, as we just spend a few minutes in ministry... My prayer has been that every single one of you will experience this morning the most elemental aspect of what it means to be a Christian, and that's experience the love of God. His love. I want every sing- I've been praying that every single one of you will be overcome with a sense of the love of God for you. The Father loves you. Brothers, The Father loves you. He loves you. And He knows what you've been up to. And He knows the promises you've made and broken. And He loves you. And it has to begin here. In fact, it's not even good to share your faith until you have that, or because you'll share it wrong. You're not called to be a salesman for Christ. You're called to be a witness. That requires experience. And I'm praying for you men, you ten men who stood up last Sunday, 
God moves something in your heart. Here's another terrible thing that has happened in the American church. And we baby boomers are to blame for it. We made everything about methodology. Here's the method. Here's what you do. Here's what you do. We'll have a class for that. We'll have a class for this. Ten men stood up in each service last week because God moved on their hearts to be one of those ten men. And a natural question to be going through your mind is, okay, when are we going to have our class? When are we going to have our group? There's no class. There's no group. God stirred in your heart. Now stand up and become that man that God stirred last week. Are you hearing me? So this morning we just want to ask God to come and move in each of us in his great and amazing love. Father, we pray. I just pray for every person here. I pray for the love that you have for us. I pray, Lord, that the lies of of your disappointment and judgment that once stood opposed to us would be canceled. I pray that every man and woman, young person in this room, would just come to the place of uh, experiencing your love. And I pray that it will begin here, Lord. Are you thirsty for an experience with God? Let's stand together, church. Just respond as God moves you.